a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Back in the day, Jason Roberts appeared to me as the wonder kid on TV, fresh-faced, an enviable career and comfortable with himself and his skills, having worked for Damien Pignolet for seven years at Bistro Moncur. His brilliant rise saw him grace our TV screens regularly on daytime TV, including Ready Steady Cook, where we actually met, and hosting his own show, Fresh. A move to America saw him become a regular on Good Morning America, The Rachel Ray Show, the daytime talk show, The Chew, and The Sharon Osbourne Show, all of which made him a household name. He hosted his own show, Jason Roberts Taste, and won two American Accolade Awards. He has now returned to Australia and lives in Bondi, uber cool, uber fit, and sharing his knowledge and influencing his audience in a very different way. And just a warning on this one, we talk about mental health, depression, and suicide, which may trigger some people. So here's my wonderful chat with Jason Roberts. Jason Roberts, I must say, first up, the food that you post on Instagram looks so good. Oh, it's amazing what you can rip off Google these days, my friend. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> but it does. You've got a certain style and a certain way that you present and you post. And I, yeah. and from a chef's perspective, how you yeah. get food and what's delicious, yeah. it's kind of, you know, where you want to lick the screen or lick the page. Well, Gary, don't be licking your screen. COVID's still in play, my friend. <laughs> I tell you what's interesting. I feel like I found a little bit of a niche for myself. You know, remember when Donna Hay come out and everything was really white and there was this real cleanliness to it. And I guess during the start of COVID, obviously I saw the importance of writing recipes, posting images. And to be honest, I had a black surface. I had a black wall. And what it allowed me to do was post real vivid images where the food was really the hero. And I didn't have to worry so much about all the fluff that went with it, all the additional styling and stuff like that. Like I kept it really simple. I was posting a lot of recipes and it's sort of, I feel like it has just become part of my style. I like it. And to be honest, it feels lazy. Like I just point and shoot, but I do, I do demand having uh, real light. I can't work with studio light. I was going to say that you discovered something and it maybe because I was talking to a photographer friend of mine and she said, mm. yeah, what you post is really blown out. You know, it's, you've got, mm. she said, you must have a, ki- a white kitchen bench. I go, yeah, everything's white. And she said, mm-hmm. yeah, you need natural light. You've got, have you got a, like a single window that casts this yes. kind of delicious light on everything yes. you post? You're the only person who's actually said it, delicious light, and that's the way I see it. <laughs> it really is. And to be honest, at 5 now, because of daylight savings having ended, literally at 5.30 in the afternoon, it's like, well, there goes my shoot day. I can't shoot into the night or do anything like that. It yeah. really is about dropping it back. Yeah, I think you did that. You did a live, you do your live post where, mm-hmm. with G'day, G'day Neighbour. neighbor. G'day Neighbour. Yeah, I love it. Say it to me again. Go on. G'day Neighbour. I love it. And we'll talk about that, but you did a yeah. you did a dish with uh, like some braised greens and, and you talked about the fact, I think you stood, stood by your window just to get that last little bit of warmth and you said, that's it, we're 20 minutes, we're out and you were yes. done. Yes. Interesting enough, so that was last night's live. I think, Gary, what's really important, and each day that I do this, and to anyone who's tuning in, what G'day Neighbour has really become is about building a community. And I think it's always important. Yes, recipes, you and I can cook, my friend, and we know how to cook, and it's something we do second nature. But ultimately, I always like to have a message. And so last night's message really was about watering your own garden, putting yourself first. Give yourself that first 10, 15 minutes in the morning to think about what you need and it really, is, really does ring true. I mean, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I was on an aeroplane, but when you're on an aeroplane and they say, <laughs> put your oxygen mask on first, that's what, that's what I think that's what it is to be, be a human, is to be aware of putting your oxygen mask on first so you become a better human for other people. So each day there's a message. Yesterday the message really was about watering your own garden and being conscious of your food sources. I do like to do Monday is like meat-free Monday. I'm not I'm not label what I what I am. I'm not a vegan. I'm not pescatarian. I'm not. A, I'm everything. I eat the food that I need to eat when I eat that food. Um, so, but yeah, the key. It's always key for me to have a really important message. When it yeah, comes there's to a bit of deep thinking that's going on. Like I did, mm. you know, I'm not, I don't want to blow smoke or anything, but I did think as I was. I've watched a few of them now over the last number of months, and I get the idea that I don't know whether things have changed for you, or whether maybe as you've got older, you've just gone in a different direction. Yeah. But there's a lot, yeah. you're like, you don't seem old enough to be dad, although you are, 
But, uh, you know what I mean? You still, you still, I still think you're like 19 or something. Yeah. But there's a certain wisdom that, that comes across in, in Good Day Neighbor. Uh, you know, I've got, Goosebumps about to tell you this, my friend. Um, so it's quite strange telling people this now because I'm 47 years of age, but I didn't drink alcohol till I was 30. Um, never did drugs. It just wasn't my scene. But, you know, working for Damien Pignolet and working in the restaurants that I had, I was always the younger guy. I was always the young apprentice. I was always the young head chef. At, I was 23 when I was head chef at Bistro Moncur and, and holding on to two hats then. So I always saw that I had 90% of my staff were older than me. I couldn't afford to screw up. I couldn't afford to go out after work at 1 o'clock in the morning and come in work trash. So I missed that whole thing of, doing the alcohol and staying out late and all that sort of thing. So the, to bring to present day, what that's meant for me, all the shit that I could have gone through, all things with relationships, all things to do with death, all things to do with just having the right tools, I sort of lent into them without alcohol as the as the backdrop for that, as trying to deal with, with things in life through taking drugs and alcohol. I actually lent into them. I feel everything on that level. So I think what it's done now is is – to current time is that I deal with things differently and I want to teach people the importance of leaning into those vulnerabilities, get uncomfortable because mental health now, and you know this, mm. mental health now and people certainly in our industry, in the hospital industry, it sort of tips in the darker side of it. And I really believe it's in those years, those those formidable years of learning and teaching that we were given this, you know, this incredible platform where ego was allowed to rule and we didn't lean into those things that were really tough. We didn't come out the other side with the tools. We didn't come out the side, out the other side with the tools to deal with a failing business. So that's where I'm at now because I see a lot of my peers who really struggle. I mean, I still have my struggles with doing what I do. You know, social media, I, I, I can't stand it. Mm. But I also love it because it's what pays me at this point in time. I love creating content. So it's a bit of a dual-edged sword, but I feel if I'm going to do it, I'm going to try and find ways to build community around and teach people the importance of really connecting, really leaning into the words. Um, I recently had a couple of um, you know close people die and I didn't know how to deal with it. But to be honest, Gary, this community that I've built through social media, through G'day Neighbor and, and what I'm doing now, people are sending me these incredible messages wanting, you know, hey, if there's anything I can do for you. And, and ultimately they can't. But what they have done was made me feel safe. In a, there's a safe space for me to share how I feel. I was uh, I, literally the day after Kylie, this is my ex-fiance, she had died. And I went live. I didn't want to go live. And I thought, you know what? I have to lean into this and I have to share a sentiment. And you know what? There were people who, who had lost people who shared their stories, but a woman came on live with me and she was in Cyprus. She had sent her son to Sydney for um, studies. Her daughter had come over and I think it was a year ago, she, she said that her daughter had got hit by a car and in fact she died. This woman had came on, I chanced it, I got her on live and she was sharing this story about her, about her daughter and what it is to get through it and what I needed to do. It was the most magical moment for anyone who'd ever lost anything. She was giving real tools and there was this incredible vulnerability and it was just, it was just an incredible space because ultimately a lot of countries are still in lockdown. A lot of people still don't, can't make that connection with other people. So it's yeah. been wonderful for me. There would have been a lot of people in tears. Oh, it was heavy, bro. Very, very heavy. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, and we forget that. I mean, I think, you know, it's certainly not front and centre in our minds. I think it's getting pushed a little bit further back that, you know, Australia's been very lucky. You know, we were quite pragmatic about it. But certainly, mm. you know, we've all got friends, you know, whether it's in the States or in the UK or yeah, France, yeah. et cetera, that are just still, you know, at the coalface and really struggling with this whole thing. Loneliness has been an enormous problem and the mental health issues out of that. Mm. It's so true, and I look. And I think this this consistency in coming on live every day for, with 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 my Instagram account. If for me it was a way to create purpose, because I'm not running restaurants anymore, I do a little bit of consultancy, but it was a way of having purpose at five o'clock in the afternoon. To be honest, you know, each day I'd wake up, going, okay, what am I going to cook today? I'd be tired. I'd be like, oh my god, here I've got to go to go back to work again <laughs> in my sunroom, cook a dish. No one's, <laughs> it's, but I'd find ways to make that dish connect with it with a sentiment sort of thing, but. I, I will tell you, Gary, there's still days where I feel like, you know, I'm doing all this and I'm making this connection, but I feel horribly lonely. I'm not in a relationship and the disconnect can be quite, can be quite overwhelming. Yeah. But ultimately, if I, set, if I set a plan and I make these notes about having purpose each day sort of thing, and I, I know a lot of friends now who've started journaling, they talk about what they had done yesterday, they talk about what they're going to do today, and they talk about points for tomorrow. 
And it's a way to keep you present. Ultimately, that's how I've managed my mental health is just staying present. Yeah. And if it's just taking notes, if it's checking in with other people, it's been very beneficial to my, my uh, mental health. I know it's a little bit off topic, but I was just thinking there as you were talking about teaching young people, especially in the industry, imagine, and I can't even imagine it myself, when I was at college, one of the lessons being and regular about being managing your own health and mental health in this industry. It's it would have changed everything. Like 30 years ago, it just would have been, yeah. you know, because alcohol is a big problem in the industry, still is. Yeah. You know, in yeah. fact, you know, many of the chefs that either I've worked with or for, you know, you know, when I look back, even Michel Bourdin, who was a wonderful human being, I remember mm. him sitting down to lunch every day and having half a bottle of brie in the yeah. chef's office. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine drinking during the day and trying to work. Impossible. Yeah. Well, but just, you know, it's fairly rife. And there's the blurred line between someone you respect in the industry is having half a bottle of wine. He would say, well, this is the wine that I'm drinking with my food. Yeah. And is it, or is it being used as a coping mechanism or a way of sort of having to divert any real shit that's going on in their life sort of thing. So there's the, there's the blurred line. Gary, it makes so much sense as that is part of the curriculum when mm. teaching young chefs and people in hospitality. Unfortunately, I don't think we were taught enough about business. No, nothing. Nothing. We, no. we, were, taught, we were taught, here's the food. Yeah. Bring in your creative. And, and there is interesting, and now because we can look at our life in 20-year chunks, we can remember when we were back at mm. um, culinary school and we can remember the things that we learned to cook. We can remember the chefs that we looked up to, but there was always this, I don't know, for me it was like you, you feel like I'm copying, I'm copying, I'm copying other people, I'm copying, I'm reading books, I'm copying other people. Okay, I'm finally doing my own thing. I'm finally doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. That oh, shit. <laughs> I've got nothing. I can't. Where? Who am I? Who am I? You go through this. This is midlife crisis. Who am I? What am I doing? And to be honest, now I think I've finally found my feet with food. And I have a great relationship with Chef Tom Walton, who's actually my neighbor. And we talk about someone who's fit and eats well. And Tom, he literally lives 20 meters away from me. He's the guy that kicks my ass in the morning. Hey, let's go do a little run. It'll be 25 Ks later. Uh, but there is this presence for me when it comes to food. It's actually going back to super primal. It's about being around the fire. It's about the smell of smoke. It's about, it's not the, tw the 20 ingredients. It literally is the one or two different ingredients. It's just, it could be a whole eggplant and good olive oil and tahini or those are the things that really resonate with me because these create conversation. Mm. These are about building community. But if they're, you know, they're chefs and obviously cooks listening to this podcast, the hardest yeah. thing, and I still yeah. do it, you know, yeah. I'm going up and doing the Noosa Food Festival. I've got a dinner on with George, actually, on, on oh, Makepeace oh, Island. There's only 40 people. And we yeah. sketched out a menu and we're all happy with it. But now I've got to sit down and rethink it. I don't need to, but I'm going to because I have to. Because I'm yeah. thinking, is that enough? <laughs> is that enough? You know, like we've got, you know, we've mapped it out. But this is where the overthinking gets in the way. So Gap. talking about that single eggplant, olive oil, yeah. roasted over fire, delicious, right? So but we always want to trick it up, add stuff. Well, we think... Gary, we think we need to. You know what? And this is, this is. I think, here's how I see the restaurant industry in Australia sort of thing. I think as, as a chef and the idea of having a restaurant sounds like a great idea. And when the opportunity presents itself to have two and three, then we start spreading ourselves thin. But ultimately, people are coming to your restaurant because you're at the restaurant and it's what you bring. And so this is how I see a menu now. Let's just say you have a menu and it has that eggplant and the olive oil in mm. it. You're not just getting the eggplant and olive oil. You're getting... You're getting Gary Megan's 30 years experience in the industry and all these his ups and downs and everything that comes with it. That's the love. That's that little pinch of love we used to talk about. Yeah. You're getting all the stuff, but that comes from you. That doesn't come yeah. from all your staff. That comes from you. Yeah, correct. So that's how I see the industry now. And I think we still have a tendency to overthink things. I think when I'm putting a menu together, if, I, if I'm not putting some form of charcuterie on it, because that's my real love of French food, then it's not really Jason Roberts' menu. But I have to change that thinking. I really do because I don't necessarily eat like that. I don't want to spend three days. Yeah, and, that, and I watch your, you know, your Instagram stuff and I, I want a bit of you. I want to see, you know, what that yeah. greens yeah. dish looks like, you know, yeah. put on a plate, you know, because yeah. that's delicious for me. And this has now become, <clears throat> I think we're sort of, we're, we're landing in the right place because we're more aware of waste not, want not. You know, a long time ago, you know, certainly French food. And I remember the guys at, at Level 41, they were doing, I think it was like a crown of rabbit. And I remember taking on a few of their staff. This is when it was Dietmar Sawyer. Mm. And their staff would, would tell me when I'd take them on board, eventually I'd end up coming to Moncur. They said, oh, no, we used to, used to throw the hind legs out. <gasps> but we were making rabbit riette and everything else yeah. from it. So I've loved that transition. 
of utilizing every part of the vegetable, all the all the all the greens from around the broccoli, all the stems, all the cauliflower greens, and you can roast them and fry them, and even the tops of the zucchini, they're totally edible. Yeah. We we just I remember as an apprentice, you'd probably lose about an inch off every <laughs> side of vegetable. Like you're probably throwing away a third of everything. Yeah. But I've certainly I've certainly wised up to that. And I love what food's become because of that sentiment. Yeah. What are you like? So, what are you loving cooking right now? It's already kind of be very present, but what do you love cooking yeah. right now? Like when you talked about, say, you know, the 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 sprouts growing on a, you know, like on a yeah, the on stick, a stem, yeah. you know, yeah. People and people don't know. I've actually a friend of mine said to me the other day. I was quite shocked. She's not a chef, obviously, a cook. Yeah. And she's not really. She's only just started playing with recipes. And she said, you know what, I've never cooked fresh beans. And I actually had to take a step backwards. I said, what do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, while the kids were young, we just were always busy and we just yeah. buy frozen vegetables. And I'm thinking in my head, no one buys frozen vegetables. So next time I'm in the supermarket, I'm looking at the frozen vegetable section. I go, yeah. a lot of people buy frozen vegetables. Because oh we just gosh. live in a different world, right? Yeah. So well, there, was no, there was no preparation. It really was just whip open a plastic bag yeah. and take out what you needed. And that's sort of convenient when you've got a big family and you, and you don't have the time. I get that. And to some extent there is, you know, the way they freeze things now, there is nutritional value in it. Sure. And maybe it's even better than half the stuff that's been sat on the shelves for six months. Sure. For, for as far as I know. But the things that I love, I mean, I'm a big fan of all the Middle Eastern flavors at the moment. But as far as food, it really is comes down to seasonality. I'm a huge fan of regenerative farming. Yeah. And when I say I'm a huge fan, I'm I'm 100% behind it. I, I wish I had known about it earlier. I've started reading The Hunt for the Reed Warbler by Charles um, Massey. And I love what Charlie Arnott's doing with his biodynamic lamb, the guy at Fairlight Butcher. Um, and the way they're starting to tell this story and what, and what farming really is. And so I guess that really dictates the way I cook now because I want foods that are in season. I want to know that they've been grown in such a way that's been kind to the earth. Our whole narrative really needs to change on the way we consume the planet. And so farming is a big part of that. So now it will really dictate the way I cook. Anything over an open fire, Gary, I can't wait to get back. Actually, I was talking to Manu a little while ago. I totally name drop right then. Um, I was talking to Manu, one of my favorite TV shows to date, and, and there is a little shoot I've got coming up and, it, and I'm definitely taking some of the love of what you guys are doing. Boys Weekend was one of my favorite shows. How ridiculous. I think that Fun. show needs to, that was. I think that, <laughs> I think I'm sure there was some behind the scenes stuff that we'll probably never know about, no. but that show is for me was the ultimate getting together of men. It was primal it, and it doesn't even have to be just about men, but it was about getting together as a group. It was about cooking food that made you feel good and about conversation. Mm. And that's what food is for me now, is everything that you guys had planted that seed in a while back. Yeah, it was a little bit of fun. I remember the uh, producer, exec producer, turning around and saying, not to me, of course, I was drinking tea, but they said, uh, <laughs> boys, you, you can't drink and work and expect this to come off. You know, like it's not actually a boys weekend, which was kind of news to all of us. We just went, what? I thought you were just filming this and we were just doing what we wanted. So it was a very funny show. And actually lots of people have said they'd love to see it come back. So Yeah, I would love to, I would love to see it come back. And be, it's probably before it's time because I, I'm pretty sure something like a, a Netflix would actually pick up the one where you were drinking the whole time. Yeah, too. probably. You know what was funny is I remember it did get pitched, you know, when it had been on, and I can't even remember what channel it was on, but when it, when it had been on it got pitched into America and they said, look, we love the concept, but we can't do it with those guys because they're all overweight. And that didn't oh. fit That didn't fit the uh, kind of American oh. need to be beautiful narrative that they wanted to carry forward about blokes getting away for a weekend. It was very most funny. People, most people who are listening to this who watched food TV probably wouldn't realise how typecast uh, TV chefs are for TV shows. I mean, it's such a thing. You know, I you mentioned The Chew a little bit earlier, and that yeah. was a show that um, uh, ultimately Gordon Elliott, who used to be one of the hosts of uh, Good Morning Australia with Kerry Ann Kennelly, I think in the 80s, he went over to the States and started producing food TV. So everyone from like Paula Dean, the Neelys, a whole lot of Food Network stuff. Uh, ABC America had reached out to him about doing a show, but ultimately – it was a cattle call and he brought people in from all around the world. He wanted the united colours of Benetton. There had mm. it to be the the Asian, the black American, the the token Aussie, there's the Hispanic. Like and they ultimately they ended up with a cast of five people. Um, and then with additional to travel around the country as um, outside broadcasters. But that's but TV to date 
is very typecast. People know what they want before you even get there. I mean, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but it's fundamentally a network will know what they want before they start it. Oh, yeah, of course. It, so, it, we felt that, to be honest, when, you know, we looked at each other when we'd been taken on for MasterChef, you know, and obviously I knew George because George used to work for me. And then, we've, yep. I mean, we know known each other for, I can't even, since 96. And Matt we knew as a food critic, but was a cautious relationship. You don't want to get too, you don't want to get too close. You don't want to get too close to you know the guy that came into your restaurant and wrote up that you had a wobbly table. Do you know what I mean? So, but we looked at each other and went, "Are you kidding?" Like <laughs> seriously? I mean, now on MasterChef they seem to have the three that you know yeah. that have been cut out from a very good looking cloth. Yeah, you know. But we were we were odd looking blokes to have on television. So we, no, we did okay. you you guys you guys were the right people at the right time for that show. I mean, to be honest, I don't even have a television anymore. But ultimately, what I remember of MasterChef was you three guys, and it was when you were teaching the younger people or the people who were there in the comp- competitions. That's what I love most yeah. when you're doing your little masterclasses. That's when I, that's when I thought you guys really shine. Yeah, well, that's what I love knowledge. doing. I mean, it's lovely yeah. to hear that you feel the same way. But there's nothing mm. better. You know, I was telling Dave earlier that they they reckon going forward. I was listening to this guy saying that if you know something that somebody else doesn't, then you're in a good position. You know, especially yeah. with social media and the networking that we have now, you're in a position of of we need, you know, because yeah. and it doesn't mean that you're super experienced. It yeah. just means you're just a little bit above someone else who knows nothing. It's quite interesting, you know, that sharing of of information. It's easy so- easy to access too. Like I found in lockdown, yeah. I'd be researching the hell out of one particular thing, not in a kind of crazy way, but just a yeah. oh, follow a trail of information that takes you to some crazed person who loves Babka who's or Panatoni who's been, you know, now makes the best Panatoni and probably better than anything you could buy. Wasn't, you know? it, wasn't it crazy the start of COVID it went through that phase of banana bread then sourdough? <laughs> I mean, I loved it. I I made the most out of it. I um, I mean, I started making sourdough and I mean, I can't make it anymore. I mean, I've still got my sourdough starter, but I just... It, everything just went, apart from everyone buying up toilet paper, everyone went quite primal when it yeah. came to food. And they're like, oh, I can only use use the basics sort of thing. And I, I, I actually loved seeing what people were putting out on social media. Yeah. It really was like they were given rations. And I actually started doing porridge every day. I started this little thing on porridge, like sweet porridge, savory porridge, putting out recipes for for 30 and 40 cents sort of thing. I just thought, well, this is the end of the world, guys. You might as well go out eating porridge. <laughs> Here's porridge with a fried egg and truffle. It's a bit Good more luck. expensive, but I had one. Well, you know, it's congee in another world, isn't it? So same, oh, you know. and that, that I did. I did rice porridge. Actually, to be honest, that was my favourite. Yeah. Just boiled, boiled rice. And jasmine rice actually is very fragrant when there is nothing else to it. I was like, I was having, I was actually having moments of nostalgia, like when I first started my apprenticeship and, and things where I was tasting things for the first time. And it was weird when you when you your blank canvas is like a rice congee, yeah. And you're going, this is probably the best thing I've ever eaten, <laughs> and maybe the cheapest. <laughs> I, I felt kind of the same way. I mean, I'd get up yeah. in the morning, and you know, my daughter was supposed to be first year uni, and stuck oh. indoors with Mandy and I, and I was driving her insane. She goes, Dad, you have to leave me alone because I'd get up in the morning and I'd be like, Right, what's the plan? And she'd go, <laughs> Plan. There's, we can't leave the house because in Victoria, we, you know, we had a five-kilometre rule mm-hmm. and everything. And, of course, I'd be thinking about what we're going to have for lunch, what we're going to have for dinner. I mean, we went down the course of special requests. You know, I remember Jenna saying to me, I'd like steak tartare. I go, all right, we're, we're on, you know, and I'm, you know, finally dicing all ingredients and combining them together and plating up a nice little version with crispy croutons, you know, crazy. But I, I actually en- I enjoyed that. Yeah. In a different environment that's not under pressure and putting out tables and tables worth of it. You might be the same as me, whereas your kitchen at home is sort of a little bit decked out. You'd have things in your kitchen at home that you'd probably have at a restaurant. That yeah, most I do now. I never used to. No, neither did I. I used to and leave I, it at the restaurant. Well, I loved it now, but I never cooked at home either when yeah, I was not at I. a restaurant. No one, <laughs> I don't think chefs ever did. I was thinking about what was, I mean, I'm pretty sure I probably opened cans and made two-minute noodles. Mm. Like and and it really wasn't till I'd really left the restaurant industry, and I'd say this is probably going back two thousand and two. Oh no, two thousand and eight. I went back to running the Bellevue Hotel for Damien. So there were periods of time when I'd cook at home a lot more. But when I was running a restaurant, and you're there fifty, sixty hours a week, yeah, you're too tired to cook at home. 
But now I love I love cooking at home. There are days where I feel tired from cooking at home because I'm doing these lives and they become they become special to me. But not only am I making my dinner at five o'clock, I'm eating earlier, but I have all these local kids who will knock on my window at five thirty and they'll come by. So we were talking about knowledge and and tapping back into this almost this nostalgia and how it makes you feel when you you're doing crude little sippets at home sort of thing and you maybe finish off a little bit of garlic and you'll finally chop the parsley finer than you've ever chopped it, but you're doing it at home and not the restaurant. Like you, you've taken the time. You maybe even rang it out in water because I'll get a sweet little picture off that. But what I've loved, Gary, and, and this will be who I am, this will be who I am till I'm gone now, is that passing of that knowledge. I don't see recipes as ever, ever being a secret anymore. You know, Café de Paris and uh, recipe and the French onion souffle and the and the chicken liver pate recipes that I have. I want people to know those. I want to give them. I want you to have a crack at making them. And when you fail, come back and I'll go through it again with you. But ultimately... I want to create new space for new knowledge. I want to do new things and yeah. and hence how, you know, this pottery thing has come about for me. I've just fallen in love with clay. It's it's wonderful. But this is part of surely your creative bent is that, you know, you've been in food for so long and make things yep. and they're unlike, say, a nurse, which my daughter is training to be, yep. you know, when she comes home and tells me about her day, I go, well, wow, I couldn't do that because I'm used to making things that, put smiles on people's faces and yeah. they can enjoy an instant gratification. I'm sure there's lots of things in her field that do the same thing for her. But for yeah. me, it's a creative thing. So surely that pottery is an extension of that. Oh, Garrett, 100% is. But really is, for me, it's almost like meditation. I've never been great at meditating. I've never been able to just shut off. I'm, I could read a book and I'd be, by the time I get to the end of a page, I've had 12 different thoughts and I've got to go read the page again, unless it's a, unless it's a recipe and I'm incredibly immersed in it. But ultimately my mind is everywhere. But pottery was one of those things where it's all about being in the moment where it's a connection between your head and your hands. And then understanding the basics of, you know, anchoring your arms and letting you work in the clay and not letting the clay work you. But what had happened was, you know, five, six months ago during lockdown, my we were allowed to go to our uh, neighbor's places sort of mm. thing, you're allowed two people. But my neighbor was a teacher, pottery teacher. I had no idea. Anyway, so she started teaching me and then jumped forward three months, school holiday program started and there was, um, I could go and volunteer. I volunteered helping kids throw clay, but ultimately I was teaching them how to center it. To the point now, the last school holidays, I got paid to teach kids how to do pottery. I was like, oh, my God, the pay was really good. <laughs> I don't think on an hourly rate I ever got paid that working in a restaurant yeah. and considering I've only done it for five months. But I think what the real, the, uh, the thing that, that I picked up on most was the connection with the kids and teaching them and what it meant to get down on their level and see them play as a child and not to put any pressure on coming out with anything that I think needed to be perfect, but everything that they thought was fun and whimsical. And I think that's how I see food. I will forever be the Peter Pan of food. Mm. I don't have a lot of structure when it comes to it. I just enjoy it so much. The thing I love about working with kids is there is no expectation and that they just love learning. Yeah. And when you can see that and be part of that, it's wonderful. You know what? Just my experience of, I mean, obviously I'm a dad, but when we did Junior Master Chef, what was amazing is I remember the fuss and, you know, a lot of it was box ticking from a legal, legal perspective about having kids in a studio, which is dangerous already, but then mm -hmm. dealing with things like mixers and slices and knives and all this stuff, there was complete panic. I mean, the yeah. over-supervision at the start and also having the kids, parents in the bleachers, you know, watching on and cheering for little Johnny. <clears throat> and it changed very, very quickly because one thing we realised within a couple of days, number one, it was bad having the parents there because the kids kept referencing the parents. You know, like yep. it's, uh, am I doing this right, Dad or Mum? and then kind of validating it by going, yeah, come on, keep going. And take the parents away and the kids just now concentrate on what they're supposed to. Yeah. Which made me think straight away, oh, that's why Jenna would learn lots more going to school because I'm not constantly on her back or, you know, checking up on her because that's what they do. They go to school and they learn yeah. and they run around and they fall over and all those things, just to all those yeah. parents that forget that. And then with all the equipment, what was amazing was that we thought, oh, they're going to just chop their fingers off and they're going to stuff their hand in the mixer and we're going to, it's just going to be bloodbath is that when you tell them something, they actually listen. Yeah. Which they don't do at home, I'll be honest. No. But in that environment, if you said, now don't put your hand in the mixer because the thing moves around inside and it's going to really hurt, they go, right. And they all look at each other as if to say, well, we're not going to do that. And then with the knives, when you then apply 
Because you'd think, okay, well, they're going to chop those little fingers off. But then you apply a child's strength to that knife. Yeah. Of course, the cuts are kind of, I suppose, in proportion to their strength and effort and yep. all the rest of it. And the net result was if they did cut themselves, there'd be tears and then they'd get a Band-Aid and then they were really happy and then they could talk about their cut and their Band-Aid and they had a war wound. It was just really fascinating. You tell a kid, for example, when you poach a pear, you've got to be able to eat it at the end with a spoon, right? If you told an adult that, they go, yeah, I know how to poach a pear. But the kids, <laughs> when it was time to nearly take those pears off, guess what? They're all focused on it. They all got the idea that you've got to eat it with a spoon and it's going to, you know, da-da-da, and every single one would be perfect. Amazing. A child's attention uh, to learn and give time to learning is far more than what an adult would because an adult is dealing with current stress, current stuff, anything in the background, anxiety, tension. Yeah, I can do that because they're basically just passing it. What do you use? Boil, you know what? boil it. Yeah, I can boil it. <laughs> but, no, but I'm telling you, you got to, it's the texture. No, nah, I boil it. How long you do it for? They expect, and, and then this is an adult needs a cookbook. Mm. Whereas you could teach a child the premise of poaching something and what it's meant to feel like. As much as I love writing cookbooks and writing recipes and stuff, I really don't believe in them. <laughs> I don't think because from season to season, from from vegetable to mm. vegetable, everything changes. The temperature of, of your oven versus my oven will be different. You, we need to teach people how to read things. There's a logic associated to it. And that's what a kid wants. It wants to see the logic. It wants to feel the logic. And they do. Don't give them a cookbook. Give them your time. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So where does this all take you? Because I'll be honest with you, watching G'day Neighbour, I just thought this is a TV show that surely somebody's going to pick up. Or would it so, would it lose its um, connection here's, for here's, you? Gary, here's, here's, what I'd like, here's what I'd like to do with G'day Neighbour. And I don't, do you remember Shirley Strawn? Do you remember Shirl's Neighbourhood? Yeah. So there are several shows in the back of my head before COVID had even started that made sense to me. And I loved Shirl's Neighbourhood because I loved the connection to children. There were a couple of puppets involved. And there was like this daily message and I thought it was really cool. And then having lived in the States, I was very familiar with, with Fred Rogers or Mr. Rogers. It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. Yeah. We yeah. never got it here. But anyway, but Mr. Rogers was always about kindness. He was always about encouraging and teaching children the importance of things that happened in life, the association to life through racism, through sexuality. But it was done in such a tasteful way. There were no blurred lines. It was very to the point. So... I think ultimately that's where, where I'd like to see G'day Neighbour. But at the same time, it's the comments that you get. So television television is a great platform, but ultimately social media is great because people can socially connect with you. They can send a message. They can be part of your live. Last night I went, I was I was doing this live. In fact, I went live to this woman, Angela, in uh, Alsace. She was showing me her winery in Alsace. Here we are in France. The other night, I, the other night I was in Greece, and I this guy. I just randomly get people on, and I don't know if this guy was Master Chef Greece, but his following must have been huge because I went from like thirty numbers up to five hundred and thirty. Like that's oh my god, I've won the lotto. This guy's good, <laughs> but he had it. And oh, and get this. And when I went live with him, he had the most cutest little baby in his arm. Ten points for having a baby in your arm when you go live. Yeah, tick tick. And, yeah. Right. And then he just he just. He just connected on this level of food. He asked such in, in, incredible questions of me. You know, what what has the last year taught me? Mm. And it was all about being patient. Being patient. Give away the knowledge that you think you need to keep. Give that away. Create space for new knowledge. Get outdoors a little bit more. Breathe a little bit more. Be kind to your neighbor. Check in on your neighbor. And I think with what we know about, you know, uh, mental health and, and are you being, you know, the are you okay campaign sort of thing, it really is genuinely knowing how to receive when someone's not okay. We can ask, but are you actually really receiving? And so actually this is something I learned only a few days ago through a friend of mine, Tom Spinks. He goes, mate, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? How are you feeling? Oh, 
I don't know, I'm maybe seven, I feel pretty good. And so what this has become for me, and I ask this on my lives now in the afternoon, how are you feeling? And people will tell me that they feel a three and a four and the rest of the people will actually check in with them through the back end of their messages. Oh, is there anything that we can do? I'll actually live locally. And so it sort of takes away that having to explain where you're at because if you're not feeling comfortable, you don't explain it to anyone. But it's a way of checking in with yourself. Do you know what? Actually, I don't feel so good today. Like life's weighing in on me. I haven't been able to pay my bills this week or, you know, I just massive fight with my with my parents or something like that. So this number scale thing I think is really important. Is it, how are you feeling? One to ten. And if someone can put it out that they're only feeling a four or a five, then there's a reason for me to check in with that person. Yeah. So. I think that's what COVID's really taught me. I think that's who I am as a person, and that's what this G'day Neighbour thing has become to go. So, so within television, that, that's not going to work. You've got a perfect platform. It's about building the audience well, but, but to I become think, yeah. part of the community, right? I, th- I think it's about building the audience too. Look, it can go, I, I, maybe you have a YouTube channel. I never started a YouTube no, channel. No, I didn't either. When are you going to do a YouTube <laughs> channel? Oh, I should have done that 20 years ago. Yeah. It's, not, it's just a matter of starting. I don't know where it is, but ultimately I need to have this platform where that people can send in comments because I think that's where I've gained a lot of skill is being able to listen and watch those comments come in at the same yeah. time, just knowing how to connect with those comments and, and share sentiment. And now we're at of an age, Gary, like I feel like I've been through most things. I really have, I do have some sort of experience with life, death, dreams, clearly food. Ultimately, what I'd love to see for me do you, did you ever read the book um, by Briette Severin, The Physiology of Taste? No. It's a great book and it talks about how food correlates to life, food correlates to death, food correlates to dreams. So at the age of 50, Briette Severin came from a family of lawyers. He decided he got into food and ultimately ended up writing this book. And that's where I'm at. I feel like become a little bit of a philanthropist when it comes to food and how food, how we really connect with food, how we nurture the planet, how we nurture our health, and how we grow our children, how we become the village to grow our children. Yeah. So did you feel, I mean, just to kind of drag you back into what point you felt this was in your career, but when you're on the Sharon Osbourne show, were yep. you thinking any of this or was this, you just no. on a, oh, you're just God, on a, no. you're on a, no, not you're on your way think, up and you're enjoying the success. And yeah, no, I still had, you know, when you first start doing television, there's this little bit of nervous energy. Oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, what do I have? Yeah. I'm a little bit rehearsing in my head what I'm going to do. I worked out a long time ago. You know, my first four years of television was Channel 9. I can, I know I sucked. And the weird thing is Channel 9's playing it again at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you back I on? Just, I, it, I don't know what they're thinking, but anyway. They've put it back on, but I know I suck doing television. But what I did learn, Gary, was the importance of making people feel good about themselves. So when I did the Sharon Osbourne show, I'd come out and she'd be like, she'd be sitting in bed, and then I'd bring a thing of food. I'd put the food down. I'd whip my jeans off and I'd do push-ups because I wanted, <laughs> I wanted her to laugh. I wanted people to laugh. So I'm that guy. I'm always willing to send myself up to have someone laugh. And this good day neighbor thing in the afternoon, there may be connection about food and people, life, dreams, and everything in between. But ultimately. G'day, neighbor. That's yeah. about having people laugh. You, you're a very positive uh, person and, and obviously have a certain ease with people. Have you had your own dark times, your own struggles yep. with mental health? Is this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting enough, um, I would say here, there's, there's two parts to this for me as, as, a, as an answer. The first part, my grandmother was, uh, was, was known as one of the displaced peoples of Eastern Europe. So during the war, she had got out through Germany, she was from uh, Estonia. This is when Germany and, and uh, Russia had, were involved, uh, invading all of Eastern Europe. She yep. got out, got on this boat called the Dundalk Bay that was fit to carry 500 people. There was 1,500 people, and she was one of the survivors. There were stories of, of people in that boat who were just jumping off with the kids. There was no food. They were on it for way too long, malnourished. It was, it was horrendous. Ultimately, my grandmother turned up into a country where she didn't speak the language, had no family. She was a survivor. Ultimately, she became the monarch of our family. Uh, the matriarch, sorry, of our family. Um, and then moving forward, what's interesting? Shit, this is very interesting. So TV for me, when I started TV, was because Jamie Oliver had hit the scene. Okay, this is back in 2000. Mm. Channel 9 were looking for their for their Jamie Oliver. And at the time, it was myself. Darren Simpson was being yeah, looked at. absolutely, yeah. Uh, rest his soul. And Ashley Hughes from Alio Restaurant. Anyway, ultimately, I ended up getting the gig and what had happened in your contract, and, and maybe you know this, in your contract, you're sure there's your yearly fee, 
This is their expectations on the amount of shows that you're shooting. Outside of that, we expect you to turn up to this many events throughout the year. It was part of PR. And the PR thing I really liked, I was turning up to every event, you know, still wasn't drinking, still didn't drink alcohol, but then I started dating. You know, I had had a a few girlfriends in that time. Anyway, so Kylie J, my my ex-fiancee, the one who just died recently, her and I had gotten, you know, we were on again, off again. The relationship had its ups and downs. But ultimately, we had a massive blowout one night, a really big argument. And anyway, so I, the police were called. I ended up having to go to the police station. She had taken out a restraining order because she had told them one story. I had had, had to spend the night in jail. I never been in jail, had never been in trouble. I didn't even get detention at school. I was always the good kid. I ran home that as soon as I got let out, the Waverley police station, people wouldn't know this. I ran out of the police station, ran all the way home. I stuck a noose around my neck and I stood on the chair and I said, this is not for me. I, I couldn't go all the way through with it, but that that really was a downturn in who I was as a person, but it made me realize how things can change like like that. Committing suicide wasn't for me. I'd just never been in that much trouble. I'd never had the tools to deal with a, a on-again, off-again relationship. I didn't have the tools to deal with being spending a night in jail. I didn't have family in this country. I didn't know who to talk to, but I managed to get through it somehow. But that day, that day changed me. And so I'm a very empathetic person. I listen to everyone and I'm, I'm probably more engage on a deeper level with people now because I, I care very, very much. Can you remember the overwhelming emotions on that kind of run home to get away, yeah, run yeah, away I was from in, your... I guess from what I hear about, you know, this is a heavy conversation and, and apologize for this, but I believe there is a short window where you see black. You don't, you, it's something takes over and maybe and that is that space where people actually take their lives. There was a space and I probably was my run home where I was just full of tears and anger and sorrow and feeling completely lost. Was there maybe it was, was there embarrassment? Was there ev- everything? Was, everything. Everything associated. I'd never been in trouble before. I was embarrassed. I'd been in jail. I felt like I was a criminal. I felt like I was going, I felt like I'd done something completely wrong. In fact, I hadn't. There was this, you know, but I had Kylie had taken out an AVO because she had said that I tried to cut a finger off, which wasn't the case. She had retracted that statement the next day, but I still had to wait a month to get the AVO taken off. We had found out that we were pregnant the next day. And so by the time the next, by the time I had gone to court to get the AVO out off, when I think whatever, I think it was Channel 10 at the time, because I was with nine, they had a camera guy there and it came out on the news. Uh, Celebrity chef Jason Roberts coming out of court after allegedly beating his pregnant fiance. So everything just got twisted. And this is the thing I learned about media, and I'm sure you're aware of it, Gary. What's said and done in front of a camera and behind the camera is completely different to the way the media can twist things. So that was a really hard pill for me to swallow and ultimately why I took the opportunity in the States. I just needed to get away from the Australian media. You know, I was in and out of relationships. Uh, What I'd gone through with Kylie was really tough. But also being on that stool at that time with a cord around my neck didn't feel fun. And I knew that it wasn't for me. And I knew I had to grow from that experience. So I was, I, I think I was, I think I was pretty lucky. And you're right. There was, there was embarrassment attached to it. There was, I'd never been in that situation. I didn't have the tools to try and fix it. I think for a week after that, I just, a friend of mine would come and pick me up and I wouldn't say anything. He would just drive me around. And it's been some years. I mean, I think I only had that conversation with my own mum probably about three years ago about what had happened. This is going back 20 years ago already. What did you do? I mean, other than just go to the States, what did you do to sort yourself out? I think I had seen a a number of counsellors and not till later years in life over a number of things. You know, we start to work out, like I was in and out of relationships and never could get, ever get really settled. Um, But ultimately I remember seeing a a counsellor when I was in the States actually and a psychologist and she started bringing up some past. So I have a very tough past. I actually, you know, 30, oh gosh, when I was 13, I actually ended up leaving Queensland with my mom and my brother and my sister because my stepfather was threatening to kill us. We had the, the, the federal police had to get us out of the country. We got on a plane to New Zealand. Like I've had some horrific, I mean, everyone's got their stories, 
So that was one of them for me. The, the what had happened after you know a night of being in jail had happened. Those things were then trigger points, but they were they were they were also things I believe they were traumas for me, and so I had a, I had, was able to bury them, but they were still coming up. I just didn't know what it was that was coming up. So later in life, I've sort of worked through a lot of those things. Um, I know. I know how to deal with things differently. And it really is about leaning into them. But ultimately, Gary, I'll tell you this. I didn't drink, smoke, do drugs, did nothing. So I felt all of those things. And that's what the real hard part was, was actually feeling my way through that without sort of subsiding it through drugs yeah. and alcohol and having to deal with much, much later. I felt like I was dealing with it at the time. Certainly brings new meaning into leaning into those problems. And what you said yeah. earlier at the start of the podcast about you know journaling and how important that is to mm. set your day up. Big time. Like it was so a important. Of, it was a casual throwaway. Now it's not a casual throwaway. It's a Gary, that was a it's a lesson. It's a lesson in life that we should all That was that was <laughs> this conversation went somewhere I didn't know I was gonna go. But I, I think, you know, I'm also that person. I hope that if someone is out there who's listening to this today, who's going through any shit times, mm. lean into it, ask for help, talk about it. Don't be afraid to, to talk about these things. I wish I had to talk more through them at the time. Um, hospital industry is not an easy industry and it's probably only going to get tougher. So I would love yeah. to think that people could reach out and talk about their shit. Yeah, and every, everybody, you know, experiences it very differently, don't they? Mm. And it's funny, I've, you know, I've always made a point of not drinking at work. It's never, I mean, I drink, you know, for relaxation, a glass of wine, nothing better. Yep. But, yep. you know, work and drink, never. Drugs and work, never. Only yep. because I think probably working in some of the, harder kitchens, which a lot of us have done, is that you get to see the very worst. And so yep. you either fall into it or you run away from it. And I made it very deliberate. There was almost a sense of, and not everybody was the same, you know, certainly in my friendship group, you know, within hospitality, you know, that I, I felt a sense of power by not running with the pack, if that makes sense. So, so did I. So yeah. did I. I. I liked being this, I liked being the different person. Yeah, where's I liked he going? When it, I liked when everyone was at the bar, they were ordering a beer or a cocktail or something. I was the guy ordering the milk and the grenadine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And I think for, you know, for many people, it's probably certainly having gone through what we have very timely and continue to talk about it for us to all mm. continue to talk about it. Can we flip it on the, on its head and talk about the best of times? Oh you know, my gosh, so, absolutely. You know, ripping off your jeans and doing press-ups kind of thing. I mean, you know, like in your, how long were you in the States for? <laughs> so on and off, I still have a green card. I should have gone back in January, but my, the bulk of my work is still in the States and it's the live shows. <clears throat> That's the thing I love most. And, it, and this is where this is where TV had gone for me. I love doing show. I'm happy to go and film a show. We spend a day filming a show, but Ultimately, I prefer doing a live show. I love the pressure of six-minute segment yeah. and getting it all done in that one place. I love the idea of making someone laugh. I love going a little bit rogue. I love involving the, the, a live audience or a camera. So it's the live thing. But one of my, I guess one of the highlights of my cooking career uh, <laughs> was dinner and a show. And I had employed a guy by the name of Jeff Redloff who was the – uh, choreographer for Disney Asia Pacific. And you may not know this, Gary, and actually not a lot of people would. <laughs> I was doing dinner a show across the States. And I think over three years, I must've done maybe like 15 cities. Uh, so we'd go into, a, go into a community. I would prepare food for about 250 people. I would use local hotels and stuff like that to do the food. I would source local ingredients. I remember this one time in Cleveland, I went to the, to, out to an Amish community and said, I need about 150 kilos of oyster blade. I'm going to do a dope de beau for la Provençal. And he goes, well, you're not going to get that out of one cow, are you? <laughs> well, I just took it. You forget when you're, in, you're immersed in the industry yeah. and, you, and you're not going to butcher, you're going to a farmer. He's not going to go and kill 20 head of cattle to give you one cut of meat. And I'm like, yeah. well, so I got around that. But ultimately, so what this show was, key private bank were bringing their largest investors into their community. So it was dinner, prepared the dinner. I did a live demonstration for about an hour. And then the souffle went into the oven and then I tap danced for five minutes. <laughs> So dinner and a show, my friend, I learned to tap dance. And so that was probably <laughs> so one of the highlights Jamie, of Jamie my career. Jamie, Jerry, eat your heart out by the sound <laughs> of it. <laughs> I love, I love I'm it. slightly still embarrassed that I have that story, but it was still a highlight of my career. I love it. I didn't know you were a tap dancer. And um, No, I'm not. The other guy just made me look good. <laughs> and what about, uh, you know, have you got some celebrity gossip for us? I mean, you know, the the all the hoi polloi that you would have rubbed shoulders with and 
Um, I'm putting you on the spot. I mean, it could be just no, a, fan, no, could no, be a the, fanboy uh, moment that you just went. No, I've, I was very interested. I'd be, I had been to the Golden Globes once and I thought that was really cool and I got to meet, a, you know, a couple of people there. So I got to meet like Missy Elliott and uh, Charlize Theron. And like when I say meet, you're like, oh, this is Charlize Theron. Hello. You walk away. They're never going to remember who you are. I just remember Brad Pitt when I turned around. He had slightly longish hair. I remember going, he's not that good looking. <laughs> He's not that good looking. Like he sort of looks like a chipmunk. Oh. It was yeah, it was weird for me. I was like, oh, no Instagram filter there. <laughs> that was that was I've I've been look, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've done I used to do the Wayne Brady show and I I remember the day that Wayne Brady had won his first Emmy and he had Kenny Loggins there. And Wayne Brady was the guy who was known for for doing the most incredible uh improv. And so he'd come up with a song with Footloose as the background sort of thing. So I got to meet Kenny Loggins. I mean, I got to, I got to meet some, I've got to meet some great people. But ultimately, um, I love that I'm back here. I think I cast my net pretty far over the years. I mean, I've got a storage facility in Los Angeles. There's probably got 500 cookbooks that I've spent $80,000 keeping since 2008, which means this seems such a waste. But I love that I'm back here in Sydney. I love that this community of children who come by my house in the afternoon, that's where I am. And I look and I think maybe a sentiment to maybe even to finish on Gary is it didn't happen to you, it happened for you. So everything that's happened in my life has brought me to this, this, this place. And then in the afternoons when I go live at five o'clock and I go, g'day neighbour, and, and, and in hope that maybe some, a neighbour will walk past and pop their head through that window, all those little things that we've spoken about, everything from, you know, the, 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 the stuff with, you know, having something around my neck or, or the people that I've met, I have so much more wisdom because I've, I've gone through so much more. So ultimately, it's been a full circle moment for me. Wow. You just wrote your own out there and I couldn't finish it any better. Thank you so much. Pleasure, guys. So here's my tips and tricks. And having watched Jason's G'day Neighbour yesterday, he talked about meat-free Monday and braised greens. What I loved about it is he used sprouts. And a lot of people hate sprouts because they've got this terrible memory of kind of these boiled brown vegetables. Or is it just me that remembers that? Mum, I'm sorry. But sprouts are one of those things that a lot of people don't know actually grow on a big kind of tough stem. And Jason even said you can take that whole stem with the sprouts on and you can put it over fire or you can roast it in the oven. And those sprouts, as they roast, become caramelised and sweet and golden and like little sweeties that you can just pull off that stem. You can even eat the stem itself. So you need to think about that. And what I'm going to leave you with is that sprouts really should never be boiled if there's something you shouldn't do to them, that's it. And if you want the simplest way of roasting them, all you've got to do is take off the tough outer leaves if you'd like. Maybe just give them a quick wash, dry them off, throw them in a roasting pan and put in some aromatics if you like, things like thyme or some garlic, good sloosh of olive oil and pop them in the oven and roast them until you get the same kind of roasty texture as you'd expect from a potato. You know what I'm talking about? Caramelised, crispy on the outside, super soft in the middle. Sprouts. They'll never be the same. Trust me. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.